Well, peace be with you. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, so get your Bibles out. This will be a good Sunday. I'm going to change it up a little bit. So it would be a good Sunday to get one out or turn one on if that's your thing so you can follow along with me. But as always, it's on the screen for us. So Mark chapter 4, um, as you turn in there, as you're getting to that place, I just want to kind of give us an update or remind us of something for those that are already in the know of things. But every Wednesday, we, we, we facilitate time for prayer here in this space right here. And, and so I've been doing that and alongside of uh, friend Katie um, uh, in the morning. We're going to switch it up starting this week. And so I'm, I'm actually going to be facilitating that prayer time at 8 p.m. 8 p.m. Wednesday. So for those of you who, you know, just create um, more opportunities, um, something that might be more accessible for you. And so one of the values, key values of our church is rest and rest, rest. And for us, my, my belief is that you know, there's a huge misconception around that idea of what Jesus is offering. Um, I mean, I, I don't think he's primarily talking about vacation time, although vacations are great. And we can get a lot of, there's, there's a lot of good things about them, but I think there's something about taking time to actually see what's making us restless, what's spinning the wheels underneath. And a lot of that is, um, you sort that out in silence. Um, you sort that out in looking at the word and sitting with it and listening to it, trying to hear uh, the voice of God, which we're going to get into today. Um, and that's what we do. So if you're unfamiliar with that time of prayer, or uh, every once in a while I hear people talk about how spaces or uh, prayer meetings or things like that are like intimidating to them. And I totally get that, but I, I really don't think that there's anything really intimidating about that space. I mean, silence can be a little intimidating um, for some of us because we're like, well, I don't really want to listen to what might surface. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of the point. So, um, I, you know, it's really typically about a half hour long. We, we just read from the word and, um, and then we kind of maybe offer a few prompts for you to just kind of sit and listen to what's going on underneath and listen to what God might be saying to you through that time of word. And so really wouldn't invite you, encourage you to try to make that happen. So 8 p.m. starting this Wednesday, we're going to kind of see how that goes for a while and go from there. Okay. All right. All right. Let's turn our attention to the word. We're going through Mark. Um, we're not hitting every line in Mark, but we're getting to the, the gist of it. And, and so you can stay seated uh, this morning for, for the reading of it. And, and what I'm going to do as opposed to just reading out the whole passage, we're going to read uh, verse 1 all the way through 20, but I'm going to break it up in chunks. And so for those of you that like routine, I'm sorry, it's going to look different. Okay, so I'm going to read a little bit, and we'll pause, and we'll reflect and, and kind of think it through, and then we'll keep reading it, okay? So, so this is Mark 4, verse 1. Um, just to kind of get us context for those of you who haven't been here, you know, Jesus has kind of announced his kingdom. He's doing his work ministry. He's healing people. He's, he's, we learned about this last week. Man, he's not meeting everybody's expectations. He's widely misunderstood by a lot of people. Um, the religious leaders think he's, he's operating out of evil and in cahoots with Satan. And even his family, his natural family, his mom, um, good old Mary even, and they think he's lost his mind as well. I mean, this is the context in which we find him. Uh, everybody, many are very, very confused as to who this guy is and what he's up to, this Jesus. And so here, here's what we read, um, starting in verse one. Again, he, he began to teach beside the sea and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. 
and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, let's pause there. So um, it, it, a lot of you know, probably know, some of you don't, Jesus taught people pr- a lot, primarily through parables. The parables are just little short, short stories using everyday realities, oftentimes very much the things right in front of him. I mean, that's what he's done here. He's in this little boat off out in the water, not far from the land. And he's looking at a crowd standing on the soil. The word there is soil. And so he's like, so let me tell you a story about soil. That's what he does. That's how Jesus works. He just uses the everyday stuff right around them to teach. And so that's what parables are. The little short stories uh, that seem simple enough, (laughs) but there are layers of depth to them. It's the brilliance of Jesus's teaching. Um, And when he would give them, typically what he would do, uh, and he's done this here too, is he would throw in this little rhetorical line, right? You got ears? That's essentially what he does. He tells these little stories and then he's kind of like, who's got ears? Uh, it's, a very, it's a very funny thing that he does. And, and so uh, you, if you can imagine Jesus <laughs> just telling these little snippets, these little vignettes to people, and then it's as, it's as if he says at the end of them, I wonder who's listening. And then he just walks off. And that's his st- primary style of teaching. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? I mean, I... I often wonder, I try to imagine, I don't know if you've ever done this, I try to imagine what it would have been like to, I mean, literally sit or to stand and listen to Jesus preach. I, I think, you know, did he talk fast? You know, like what was his, was he loud? Um, experts say uh, the best uh, pace is 155 to 175 words per minute. That's the kind of stuff I nerd out on. That's the ideal rate of words per minute in conversation for you to pick up on. Don't measure me. I'm still working at it. Um, so I wonder, was like how it was, and the more technical you're, what you're teaching or talking about, the more you need to slow down for people. Um, and so I don't think Jesus' parables are technical. I, I really don't. However, that being said, they're very deep in complexity and meaning. I mean, even me, I've preached the parable of the sower many, many times over my time in ministry. And I, and I went into this week, I was telling Pastor Eric this this morning, I went into this week, you know, weeks prior, thinking, no, that's gonna be a layup week. It's like, hey, here we go, soft pitch me, parable the sower. And like, which is all, and <laughs> Pastor Eric knows this, it's like the worst thing to say, because then I get into it. And I mean, I'm not joking when I say this to you guys, I was here late last night, still like, I don't even know what this means. <laughs> like, it's just, that's what parables do to you. You think you got them figured out, until you sit with them. 
That's just the, the complexity of it. Uh, they seem so shallow, at least, or uh, uh, when you first look at them, and oh, I get the meaning, and then there's depth. Now, my personal theory, just my, just, it's not Bible here, my personal theory is just that I think Jesus' style of preaching would be difficult for the average modern-day churchgoer. I, you guys would like my preaching better. I know you think that's the most arrogant thing. And the reason is, is because it would likely involve him telling a little story. And you're like, I love stories. Yeah, I know. But here's the thing. He would tell a little story with zero explanation, zero explanation to it. Uh, In the the one we have today, this is kind of an exception to the rule, just bear in mind. And so he would tell a little story with zero explanation um, to that story. And he would give you zero application. And my thing, and I've been around a long time. I, I, I was raised in the church. I, I, I was literally raised up like sitting in church services. My dad was a pastor. Church folk don't like when they have no application. They like to be told what to do. It's just true because life is fundamentally tragic and we don't know what we're doing underneath. And so we, 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 we like application. We have, I mean, I've coached people in, in sermon writing. I know you find that strange. You're like, dude, you still need coaching. I know. But the thing is, is I'm always like, yeah, what do we do with it? What do we do with this work? You know, Jesus doesn't preach that way. And that's, parables are just different. Um, and, and to be clear, you know, Jesus does uh, give uh, us things to do, okay? He, he does do that. But the reason parables are so uh, different is because he likes to tell things and then he likes people to sit and wrestle with, the own, with what they think the meaning of it is. Draw out your own conclusions from it. Wrestle with it. Now, there's a reason for that. There's a reason um, that parables are so different. Um, James Edwards, the scholar James Edwards says this, parables aren't good advice, they're good news. Now think about that. And you need to have that on the front of your mind as you, you read that story. Parables are not good advice. They're good news. Jesus isn't opposed to advice, to be very clear. In Luke 11, we have an example where the disciples go to him, one of the disciples, and they're like, teach us to pray. Like, oh, we don't know what we're doing, teach us. And he doesn't say, well, let me tell you a story. That's not what he does there. He's like, pray like this. He's giving them exactly, he's giving them advice. He's telling them how to pray. So he does, he does do this from time to time. But the parables are very different. The reason why parables are different is because they're telling us the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. That's what they're doing. When you read a parable, you're reading about the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, um, they're meant to draw you in so that you can begin to understand what he's doing in real time. When Jesus began his ministry, and we've been reading this, we're four chapters into the book of Mark, and when he, when he launched his ministry, he did a lot of healings, he did a lot of miracles, but his primary work, and you got this in chapter one, his primary work is to go around preaching the gospel, t- teaching people about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It began that way. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? It's here. It's right among you. It's taking place now. I'm here to bring it. It's breaking in. That's his primary work. He will see it all the way through to the cross. That's the idea, is to bring the kingdom of heaven in. So the parables are the good news of what that breaking in kingdom looks like. It's how you are to understand it. It's, it's helping you. The parables are meant to help you make sense of this kingdom in and amongst us right now. 
If I'm right in what I'm saying, that parables aren't good advice, they're not telling you what to do, they're, they're good news. If I'm right, and I, I of course think I'm right, and you are willing to try that on, all right, uh, how would you read this parable differently? Especially for you church folk who are familiar with the parable. How would you go to it differently? How would you go to it, let's say, and say, read it as good news? I bet you'll find it very much changes the way you interact with it. If I may, too, suggest, now I will give some advice here. If I may suggest, as you think about the parable, um, throw out your immediate sense of like performance mentality. Throw it out, get rid of it. Get rid of your guilt-ridden sense of like, I better, this is telling me how bad I am and how much harder I need to work, right? None of you felt that way? I tested it on my wife. I'm, I know I'm telling you the truth. I'm like, just read this and tell me what you're thinking. And she told me and I was like, I'm right. Yeah. So uh, here's the thing. So throw that out. Because here's what you're gonna do. And for those of you that are familiar, you're gonna read it and you're gonna go, let me guess, right? Let me guess what's going on. You're going, well, which soil am I? Anybody willing to be like, oh, that, that, that's me, right? Which soil? And now, look, look, hang on, we'll get to that. But throw, throw that out for a moment because um, I, I, I think there's a place for that. There's value in self-examination. I, for one, am a pastor who believes, I strongly believe that the church on large scale is dying in part because it lacks honest self-examination. The problem is always out there. Amen. And it's not in here. Like that, so I, I believe wholeheartedly in self-examination. However, that being said, self-examination by itself is not all that helpful or trustworthy unless you first and foremost look at Jesus and really understand what he's doing and what he's offering. That's really important. And so if the parable is meant to be good news, what is he trying to say to you? What is he saying? Just plainly, you read it. Just don't overcomplicate it. He's talking about a farmer or a sower, to be more specific. And the sower goes out and he sows seed where? Everywhere. I mean, he's prodigal in his sowing. I mean, he's this, this farmer just is ridiculous. Apparently, he's not worried about his budget. He just is casting the seed, seemingly, in a prodigal kind of way. Um, he's just very carefree about it. I don't think he's careless, but I do think he's carefree. Not only that, um, the seed he's sowing seems to have really discouraging odds. Like three out of four, it just doesn't work out. I mean, it's just the plain math of it, right? Let's look at the data. I mean, it, it, all these different locations, and yet, I mean, it's just in the long term, you know, it just doesn't work out in most of the places that it goes. However, however, where the seed enters in and goes down deep into the soil, it's really successful, right? That's, that's the parable. Oh, let me read the ending again, verse eight. Other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now, I consulted, um, I have zero background in agricultural, like with grain. So I had to consult scholars on the, these numbers. These yields aren't just merely successful. They, they defy normal expectations to the point at which they um, basically make up for all the other loss. 
So if that's all the information you had, and in real time, that is all the information we have. We haven't read on yet. If that's all the information that you had, just the telling of the first story, what's your takeaway as it being good news? My guess would be it's something like this. Well, okay, despite the strange methods, um, despite um, the discouraging process and appearance of how this farmer sows his field, he seems to really trust, really, really trust the work he's doing, the way he's going about it. He seems to trust the power of the seed. That's what I think you should take away. I think that's what you would take away. In other words, there's no reason for you to doubt or mistrust this farmer and the seed that he's throwing. Now, okay, why would that be good news? Why, why should that be such good news? Well, here's the thing. Think about it. If, and, and this requires us a little bit of like, if you were reading it from chapter one of Mark up till this point, what has Jesus been doing? We've already kind of talked about it a little bit. Jesus is gradually beginning to tell people that what, what he's doing, that he's the, that he's, and he's kind of like slowly rolling it in. And basically it's this, I'm the son of God, come down, right? This, this broken world, I'm the, I'm the son of God, has come down walking in the flesh. And what I want you to know is what the father, what God wants more than anything, isn't to call a bunch of know-it-all experts of people who think their life is perfectly put together. That's not what he's interested in. He's interested in coming down and calling to people that are failed, struggling, and he wants to offer them new life. That's what God wants to do. He's coming for those kind of people and he wants to forgive them. He, he, he wants to heal them. He wants to mend them up. And he wants to make them, more than that, he wants to make them partners with him to go and bring out healing into the world. That's what he's after. And it's gonna create slowly this, this revolution, nothing short of a, of a revolution really here. The kingdom of heaven. Well, that's wonderful news. However, right? However, the way that Jesus is going about this revolution uh, won't look anything like people would expect or even how they would want it. Um, they would want it in very different ways. It's because it's gonna look, the, this, this, this coming and, 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 and healing and, and forgiving and, and mending and giving, offering new life and hope, um, the way he's gonna go about it, it's gonna look weak. It's gonna look small. It's gonna look really slow, right? I mean, in context, these are people hearing this. Rome is in power, and they're brutal, and they wanna overthrow the government. And here, here's this man, he's bringing a kingdom. He's bringing a revolution. And Jesus is like, you have no idea how I'm gonna go about this. And you're gonna really struggle and you're gonna really doubt it. I mean, eventually he himself is gonna die and look like a failure. And he's gonna call his disciples to die. He's gonna say, you too, give up, give up everything for this cause. Uh, uh, scholar Frederick Del Brunner says it well, he says this, um, human beings do not like Jesus' low profile, nonviolent way of representing God in the world. They want a more spectacular, macho, realistic and effective savior. 
And that is why the great majority of the human race will always, if even subtly, reject Jesus. You say you like Jesus. We all say we like Jesus until actually we see how Jesus works in the world and in your life. And then subtly, you just never tell anybody you don't really like Jesus. He's hard to deal with at times. But think about why, so this, this is wonderful news for some in, in, in the story who are hearing this. The reason is that this is great, a great news for a really small group of people there within the story because um, they're, they've been hanging on. They are hanging on to Jesus like their life depends upon it. They're, some of these people are, have thrown everything away to be around him. They're following him. They're living with him. While at the same time this is taking place, and this will get worse for them, and it more extreme, at the same time they're having to confront this incredible amount of strangeness and rejection that they feel around them. The crowds will build, and then most of the crowd walks away. They're going into the synagogue, and they're watching Jesus get attacked. And into these weird, strange arguments where he doesn't fight back, and they're like, what is going on? His, His own family thinks he's crazy. Maybe I'm crazy. They're wrestling with it in real time. They're struggling with all the rejection. I'm sure there wasn't, we never think about this, but I'm sure there wasn't a single day that this small group of disciples, they didn't wrestle with thinking, man, this is, this is strange. Jesus is, isn't overthrowing any government. He's not getting rid of all the bad people. And he's not, he, yeah, he's done some healings, but he still leaves a whole lot of other people really sick. I don't know. I don't get it. I, I, I want things to be different right now, right? I, I still have a whole lot of bad things to face. And on top of all of that, people think we're crazy. I don't think there was a single day they didn't wrestle with that in their mind. However, and this is conjecture, but however, I, and I think that this is key deep down, for whatever reason, this small group of disciples around here, um, and they're not spectacular, at all, but deep down they're desperate and that's the difference. They're really desperate. They're very passionate about being different and seeing a different kind of world. They really want a different kind of world really badly. They want something different. They want to be different people. And this Jesus is promising that he can do that. And so they're hanging in and they're hanging on to him even when it's really confusing. Now, let's just pick up and see what happens next because this is, this is really important. Verse 10, right? So Jesus ends by, remember he began by saying, listen, and then he ends by saying, you got ears? <laughs> Did you see that? And then he, verse 10, he, this is what it says. And when he was alone, so now the crowd's gone, right? And when he was alone, those around him, so it's not completely alone. Apparently there's a small group of people. And those around him with the 12, so it's not just the 12, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, what, to you, it's been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. This is an Isaiah 6 quote. So that, quote, they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? It's hard, right? 
typical Jesus. Um, first off, realize this, and I think that this is really beautiful. You end up getting an interpretation here, the interpretation that we love and, and the rest of the parable. You get an interpretation because there was a small group of people that stuck with him and asked questions. That's the reason why you have more information. It's when he was alone, those around him, the 12 and, and more, they asked him questions. So Jesus told a story, didn't make perfect sense to everybody. Apparently the whole crowd now just walked away going, oh, I don't really know what that was about. What's for lunch? <laughs> and then a small group of people, very small group of people were like, I don't really know what that's about. Well, let's go ask him. Now, just sidebar, this is not an invitation for you to come debrief with me after every sermon and say, well, what was that about? Like, I'm done after this. No, I'm sorry. But that is what took place. And to be clear, disciples are no different, because the insider-outsider language keeps coming up in Mark's narrative, That's which is really important. Jesus is always throwing us off balance of like, who are the actual insiders and who are the actual outsiders and what makes them different? To be clear, disciples are no different from anyone else in being baffled by parables. They have to ask questions. It's not like they're somehow smarter than everybody else or more educated. None of that is the case. The difference is just that it, the insiders apparently, according to Jesus, are people that are confused, but they keep showing up wanting more. Amen. And outsiders are people that either, A, think they have it all figured out or just aren't interested. And Jesus is essentially, I think, telling us that's what makes them outsiders. So is Jesus then saying here that he's purposely explaining the kingdom of God in cryptic ways to push people away from him? Is that what he's saying? I don't, I don't think so. I, I think what he's saying is that the good news of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is only gonna be amazing news to the people who truly come to him humble and open. It's only gonna make sense to them if they, if they come to him wanting more. In other words, it's, it's only gonna be wonderful news and it's gonna start to make sense and click for people who come to Jesus needy like children, like they're in touch with their neediness. And they want more explanation. Uh, parables contain the secrets of the good news of the kingdom, but they're only gonna make sense to you. They're only gonna wow you if you come to Jesus over and over and over again, looking for understanding. I mean, I think essentially the secrets of the kingdom of heaven is him standing right there. The fascinating thing about secret, which that word secret there just means mystery. It's actually literally the word for mystery. And I think what he's saying is, is like, look, I, I'm not telling people mysteries like they can't solve them. I'm just telling people about myself. I'm the secret. And, I'm, and the reason why people can't trust it or believe it is because I'm just telling them the truth about me. That's the fascinating thing. Jesus doesn't, like people don't stumble over Jesus' lies. People are stumbling over Jesus telling the truth about himself. Amen. And it's like, it's hard for people because they're like, no God would actually act like this. That's the most fascinating, like interesting, wow thing that he does. He's just like, I just tell the truth. I just tell the truth and people walk away. It's too much for them to handle. They can't believe in a God that would come in the flesh and suffer and love you that much and suffer that much for you. They can't believe in it. And so, but this little group of people they apparently have this, this, this humility to them, which is, which is exactly what they do. They're getting the insights that Jesus has to offer. Now, we'll, let's read the rest of it there, starting in verse 13. 
And he said to them, do you, do you not understand this parable? <laughs> it's like, no, we don't. Well, how then are you going to understand all parables? So apparently the parable of the sower is like a key that unlocks all parables. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones that are sown on the rocky ground, the, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the, of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So what do you, and you, a lot of you have read that before, and so you have, some, you have some basic understanding or deep understanding of this. What do you do with it? I mean, with the whole bit, the parable, the little after party, the parable explanation. Like when you keep it together, because it's meant to be all together, what do you do with it? How does or should this affect you in your life? Well, I think, I think, I think the parable about the powerful work of Jesus uh, and the constant rejection of people who don't stick with him and, and as well as the little after party and the questioning by the disciples, I think it perfectly articulates the tension that a lot of you, maybe most of you, feel in the life of faith. I think it, it's, like, it's like when you hear something and you're like, that's what I'm feeling. You know what I mean? You ever have that experience with somebody? That, I think that that's what this story actually does. And, and think about it. Think about it this way. Is the whole story about Jesus's victory or your responsibility? Welcome to the life of Christianity. Like, is it, is it about the power of Jesus to just tr transform you with the good news of the gospel? Like, is it about that? Is that what my main takeaway of this is? Or is this just an alarming description about how infrequently people stick with Jesus? Is this about Jesus's power or is this about your need, my need to listen? Which one? And it's like, well, you guys are brilliant people. You realize it's not binary. It's like the answer is yes, both. It's both. That's the mystery of the faith that we're always working out every day of our lives. You grow in your discipleship to Jesus. You grow closer and closer and closer to God by listening, by putting yourself in a position to listen However, you are wholly reliant upon the power of God to grow you, to truly change you. Like you can't change yourself on your own. You need the spirit of the living God to, 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 to bring things to your attention, to show you things, to reveal you, to have you confront realities in your life that you don't want to confront. As a matter of fact, 
I would say this, like you, you position yourself over and over and over again to truly listen to Jesus because, that, because you trust that the gospel can change you. Like some of you have, have a, a, a 15 year run, a, a 25 year run or a 40 year run or whatever it is that you're deeply, deeply ashamed of. And you think, if, if, man, it would be so awesome if I could just shift all of that, redeem all of that, and it just, and it be all worthwhile. And, and that I, and that I could be somebody that's radically, radically different. And it's like, this is saying the gospel is some, the one thing that can do that. So that's why you, if you can trust that, then it's like, man, you, when you, nothing that you're pursuing has 30, 60, 100 fold odds. How's the stock market going for you? like nothing but this this does like the gospel does but it's just it's really hard to stick with because everybody else seems to reject it so we should take care to position ourselves to hear and do all that we see and hear in Jesus the way we listen the way we the way particularly the way we listen to Jesus sets the course of our entire life just like the way you listen to your spouse sets the course of your marriage. No elbows right now. But like, that's the reality. Um, author Elizabeth Malvin wrote this. She said, quote, the resounding pattern in this story is this. Hear, understand, listen again, see, understand, look again. <laughs> Like, that's the way you approach Jesus. This is the way you approach the Bible. Author Tim Keller wrote this, the gospel is not something that does something to you without you. You don't just sit back and pray and say, oh God, come on down and change my life, right? And then do nothing. You're like, well, that's exactly what happened in youth group. I mean, that's just, that's the problem is, is we actually don't talk about the fact that we must undergo training. We must continually show up. Disciples stay disciples because they are guarded about what grabs a hold of their time and their attention and their ears. And so they carefully and gradually begin to order their lives around him. They structure their entire schedule, you know, around it. They, they put themselves constantly in a position to order. And I think that that's exactly what we do. I think listening requires a kind of ordering. Some spiritual writers call it a rule of life, if that's helpful for you. We do this, I think, only to the degree that we're willing to get in touch with what aches underneath. Like, what I'm trying to say is, is you're never gonna order your life, structure your life, put making your schedule uh, map out in such a way that it's putting you in a position to listen to Jesus, to listen to the words of Jesus. You're never gonna do that unless you actually get in touch with what aches underneath. That's what I've learned. Just hard one, <laughs> hard one th things in my own life and watching and pastoring other people. I, I think we have to actually get in touch with what, um, with our pain. I think we have to get in touch with what pain we have, the things that we're suffering and why we're suffering it, what is going on there. I think we have to get in touch with the thing that's crowding our, t our time, uh, our attention, the things that have us running ragged. Like if you feel tired, why do you feel tired? Why do you feel so tired? And I'm not talking about just, well, I didn't get any sleep last night. I'm talking about a kind of restlessness tired. Why? 
Do you have it? Well, you're like, well, look at my schedule. Well, why is your schedule that way? Well, I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to stop. Like, and listen, I'm going to lower my voice so that you don't get super offended by what I'm going to say. If when, you know, when you start saying, and I say this too, when you start thinking like, I have to do this, I have to do that. You don't have to do anything. You choose to. You choose to. You have complete agency of your life. The only ones that really don't have complete agency of their life are down in that hallway. We have agency. We make the choice to make our schedule the way we make it. And so it's gradually learning to say, this isn't working, man. This isn't working for me. And I'm aching underneath because of it. That's good. You were made to ache because you were made to come to God and recognize that he wants to offer you flourishing. That's what he wants to do. But, but what ends up happening is, is the ache comes up and we just suppress it and we just fill it with other stuff. We put ourselves in other positions so that we don't have to listen, so that we don't have to question. So the more you get in touch with this stuff, the more you'll, you'll put yourself back into a posture and a position of listening and questioning mode with Jesus. So put rhythms, put an order to your life. Gradually, it takes time, man. I don't, this, by no stretch of the imagination, I think this happens in a week. This takes years. But like put practices in your life and we help try to help you do that here. I mean, put, put Sabbath into your life. Put Bible reading into your life. Put prayer into your life. Put times of, of silence and solitude in your life. Maybe put some fasting in there, but you know, learn these things. Learn these rhythms. Learn this order of life that you can do so that you put yourself into the position to actually listen. But, but here's the thing. <laughs> the, and this is, we're, we're gonna wrap up here, but like I, I want you to get this. Ordering your life around disciplines and habits, these, these things are really good and necessary, but they are meant to lead you into prayer or there's something really bad going on. Realize this, all spiritual disciplines are meant to ultimately lead to prayer, which is communion with God. That's so important because you're ordering your life alone around things, putting in these practices, these rhythms, like Bible study or any, 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 you name it. With, without them, if, without, like all, if all it is is that and it's not prayer, then it's something else. You're, you're, you're putting something else in place of, what, of communion. Let me put it that way. This is where so many of us, well-meaning, um, work hard, religious folk like myself, get into trouble and we get it wrong. Um, we accidentally make spiritual disciplines like Bible reading, prayer, Sabbath, and so on, the end in themselves, as opposed to a means to get somewhere, which is Jesus, more of him, and his power. Spiritual, spirituality, all of this, ordering your life with certain disciplines leads you to more listening or they lead you to legalism. That's, those are the options. That's what they do. When you go to Bible study, when you make time uh, uh, to serve, whatever it is, if you fast, if you take a day off, one day a week to Sabbath, whatever the rhythms that you have in your life that you would call Christian, this is my time to be Christian, they are either leading you to a place to sit and listen to like Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says and say, if I hear your voice, I don't want to harden my heart. Where's your voice? They either lead you into that space or they lead you into legalism. 
because one is either about communion or one is the exact opposite. They're about actual avoidance. And we would say, I would never avoid God. Well, the way you know is when you do these, are they leading you into prayer? Or, or are they leading you into a sense of like, I feel good, I'm spiritual, I'm working hard, and I'm done. That's how you know. It, Paul works this out in multiple places in the New Testament. He's really upset with the Galatians over this. Really upset. It's what he teaches as well as in, in, in Colossians 3 when he says this, um, or Colossians 2, verse 23. He says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They're not going to work for you. So he'll say, in other places, he'll just say, like, that's why I don't boast in my spiritual disciplines. I, just, I boast in the cross, and that's it. This is all I'll brag about. Spiritual disciplines or habits like Bible reading, serving, fasting, Sabbathing are always either about communion or, and God, or they're simply something else. And so we order our life to listen, to sit, and to be in communion. And so if you're new to the faith or if you're on the fence this morning, I hope you keep coming around. I, 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 I hope you come. I hope you serve. The things that we try to invite people to actually are purposed to put you in a position to actually listen to God. They're not busy work. And I am so sorry. If there are ever things that you're experiencing here that feel like busy work, then just don't come to those. And hopefully we'll get it right. That's what I would say. And so I hope you keep coming around if you're new to the faith. And the question I would leave you with this morning as we enter into our time of communion isn't whether you're listening. (laughs) I would say is this, what do you want? I would say it's a better question for you to be asking. It's like, what am I... What do I want? Let your wants drive you to then start to listen to God. Whatever comes to the surface is what you should bring to him. You know, whatever that thing is. So what is it that you're after? You want fruit beyond expectations? Do you want to be different? I would say just follow that longing to where it goes. Follow that to Jesus. And so uh, as we come to our communion, we we practice this every week. We practice this thing that the Lord Jesus gave us himself. And what we're doing in it is we're proclaiming um, his power in our weakness. That's the the act of of communion. This bread representing uh, Jesus's body broken for us and this cup of wine representing uh, Jesus's blood poured out for us. And when we're taking a piece of the bread, and, and dipping it in the wine or the juice. What we're proclaiming, right, is that we need his power in our weakness. And I would encourage you this morning as, as you come forward and take part in it is this. I would say, listen to the brothers and sisters that serve it. What They're speaking to you. They are, I mean, they're supposed to, right? Christ's body broken for you. Christ's blood shed for you. You're supposed to hear that and take it in. Don't hear and just hear and move on. Like, listen, this, this, this is for you. Jesus did this for you to transform you, his power in your weakness, in my weakness. That's where it's found. And so if, 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 if Jesus is Lord, if you're working that out in some fashion, there's, gen, there's a sincerity to that. You're, you're invited to come forward to this station or to this station and take part. And if that's not where you're at, man, keep coming and keep praying. Keep asking questions. We'd love to have you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We, we love you. We 
are humbled um, by the stories that you, that you told, the stories that, 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 that leave us sometimes honestly confused, and we have to ask for more, and that's just the point. Father, we want to keep showing up. We want to keep asking. We want to keep searching, knowing that in your words are the words of life. We love you. We give you, we give you all the glory. We give you all the praise for what is taking place here. Forgive our faults. Forgive the ways that we um, misrepresented the work of your kingdom. And we trust um, that you'll take uh, the small efforts that we put out and you'll make them good and you'll, and you'll make them beautiful to the kind of God that you are. And so be with us as we, as we sing out this morning, as we take part in your body and your blood and, 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 and remember the work that you've done in our place. And it's in Jesus' name. It's for Jesus' sake that we pray, that we sing, that we do everything that we're doing here. Amen.